Good morning, everyone. So this morning during Sabbath school, something that never happened to me before, my voice just quit. Um, It's back a little bit, thanks to Nancy's cough drops, I guess, and whatever elixir is in them. But this may be a very short sermon. There you go. Let's turn to our scripture reading. Let's read it, and we'll go home. Before we do that, um, again, welcome to everybody that you're here. Glad that you've each come to join us this Sabbath morning. Um, Pray, as Mike said, that you'll continue to visit with us, make this part of your church home. Uh, Recently, I was in Cuba, and so I just wanted to show a couple of pictures. I was at the seminary there, and this is why my voice all of a sudden disappeared. I was teaching about nine hours a day, nine to ten hours a day, um, plus giving prayer meetings. And just this morning, it's like, okay, I quit. Um, It was really good. We had a great time there. This is their main classroom facility. Uh, Off to this side, that's like one of the dorms. And those two pictures with all those smiling faces are my students after the end of the class. They did not look that way during the class. As hard as it is to teach for eight to nine hours a day, could you imagine listening to the same guy talking for four or five? I mean, I know I'm interesting, but... uh, And that's what I said. I said, you guys have a hard time. But it was a really good visit, great trip, great group of students, and they send their greetings back to each one of you as well. Uh, In fact they heard that there's going to be a mission trip, a youth mission trip to Cuba. Did you know that, that this church is sponsoring a mission trip to Cuba? Well, now you do. And um, at least they gave the invitation. They're hoping that the group would come down for two weeks if possible. They've done uh, organized things if we want to. It should be a great thing. And if we could pray for the youth that would be going and think of ways to support them, I think that would be a real blessing for them, for sure. Uh, some of you are, are not really very familiar with Seventh-day Adventism. Some of you are visitors. Some of you have been Seventh-day Adventists for a very long time. Some of you are new Seventh-day Adventists. One of the classes that I taught there was Seventh-day Adventist history. And that was my afternoon class. In the morning, we went through the book of Daniel. And it was very refreshing to go through... You know, in two weeks, the whole Adventist history, I was reminded over and over again of how God has led the church. And it's tremendously encouraging that God has a plan. You know, the Seventh-day Adventist church is a really unique and, and heavenly experiment. And by that, I mean Seventh-day Adventist denomination is the largest second largest denomination in the world. The first largest church is the Roman Catholic Church, but our structures are very different. You know, the Roman Catholic Church is very hierarchical. Um, Obviously, the Pope at the head of the church, and then cardinals and bishops, and and authority and decisions kind of come from top down. Our church is very different. We've had a lot of challenges, but it's exciting to be part of this church. And so in that light, I wanted to discuss this topic, which this Sabbath and next Sabbath can be kind of a different sermon for me. Uh, This is becoming another one of those heated conversations in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. In fact, 
in March, March 22 and 23, a friend of mine just sent me a flyer on this, in California at the Sac Central Church, there's going to be a meeting discussing this topic, March 22 and 23. You'll probably be able to live stream it. Uh, Dr. Domstieg, who used to teach at the seminary, who lives nearby here now, he's going to be there. And uh, Dr. McNulty, uh, neurologist not too far away, some others are going to be there as well. And they're going to be exploring this, this topic. And I just have to say that there's a lot of confusion or misunderstanding about this topic. And so that's what I wanted to explore with you this morning. But before we do, I want to share this quotation with you. It's from Testimonies to Ministers, page 49. And it says, The church, enfeebled and defective, needing to be reproved, warned, and counseled, is the only object upon the earth upon which Christ bestows his supreme regard. That's a really amazing thought. The church, and then what's the description about the church? Yeah, enfeebled, defective, needing to be reproved and warned and counseled is what? It's the place where God lavishes his love. Just like a few weeks back, we looked at a shared a quotation about how we're continually sinning, or we sin continually, and yet God's love is constantly embracing us as well. And he does that individually, and he does that in relation to the church as a whole. Um, you know, as I said earlier, church is an amazing experiment. It's really his workshop. And, and God's really trying to do amazing things as humanity and divinity interact. So I have a question for you. Like, how many of you had your lives changed in some aspect since you've known Jesus? Yeah, right. And, you know, it's, it's, that's what God does, right? And he does it through the daily interactions of life. That's the key point, that all throughout providence, the providences that God brings into our lives, and angelic beings are in awe of the transformations that's taking place, which, again, is another amazing thought for me. So as we kind of think through this, or as we just think about conflict in the church in general, or questions in the church in general, let's keep the big picture in mind The church is an amazing experiment that God's doing, but it's moving toward an end. And no matter how weak a church or we feel like we are, uh, enfeebled or defective, we are the object of God's supreme regard. But that love is for a purpose. And that's always important for us to keep in mind. That when God lavishes his love on us, It's not simply that we could enjoy the benefits of that love, but that we could be transformative agents of sharing that love with others. Now, again, the topic, uh, final generation. I said there's a lot of controversy. There's been several books written on the topic uh, by a number of different writers, and next Sabbath we'll look a little bit more at that. But this week, I wanted to share some areas where everybody agrees and then look in the scriptures and see if we can get some clear teachings. So areas of agreement, I think. Everybody that's a Seventh-day Adventist, I really hope this is true, everybody that's a Seventh-day Adventist agrees that Jesus is coming. I mean, we don't... Yes? Everybody agrees that. So we all agree that Jesus is coming, and then by extension, if Jesus is coming, that means there will be a final generation. So we agree on those two things. There's a few other things that people agree on. Uh, 
and that's a few of these things are this. There's going to be a special work of character change. In order to live to see Jesus come, something has to happen, right? So there's going to be a special work of character change, and that Jesus in heaven is trying to bring that change about in our lives right now. And the last thing I think everybody agrees with is that the great controversy needs to end. Uh, Our lesson study this morning went through Revelation chapter 6, and what's the cry that they say the souls under the altars? What do they cry out? How long? So there's this desire in the universe, in our own hearts, that the great controversy, the cosmic conflict, be concluded. And one day, that's going to happen. So those are areas of agreement. Jesus is going to come. There is going to be a final generation. That group of people is going to have something happen to them. What Jesus is doing in heaven now is at the center of it, and it will bring the controversy to a close. Next week, we'll talk about some things that we don't all agree about. But let's look at Scripture. Let's look in Scripture, um, Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 17, verse 14, a beautiful passage. And this verse, in a sense, encapsulates in summary form the great, the, excuse me, the book of Revelation. Revelation 17 and verse 14. So if somebody asks you what the book of Revelation is about, you can just point to this verse. This is what the book is about. There's a war, there's a conflict, and it's, um, it involves the lamb. In the larger context is this opposing force to God, but the lamb is going to overcome, amen, because he is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, but he has a group with him. And what are the characteristics of that group? Called, chosen, and faithful. And we've looked at this before, um, probably a year or so ago, but these are key characteristics. The point I want to stress with you this morning is the overarching view is there's a battle, between two opposing forces, the lamb on one side, Satan on the other side, and then those with each one of them. Satan has his followers, the lamb has his followers, and those with the lamb are called by God, they're chosen, they respond to God's choice, they choose as well, and they are faithful. They are faithful. When I was in Cuba, one of the extra duty things they asked me to do was speak to a group of uh, graduated students, and they have a meeting once, this was the first meeting of this year, and so the teacher that was in charge asked me to speak on integrity. So faithfulness was a key component, integrity in lots of different areas of life. We all are tested in different areas, and I shared with those students that they're going to be tested in finances, they're going to be tested in sexual relationships, They're going to be tested in their pride. They're going to be tested in beginning to coast and plateau. Those are areas that they they will get tested, and those are areas that each one of us get tested as well. And how will we respond? Well, the final generation is called chosen and faithful. What else do we find about them? Let's go to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15, we're looking at two small passages, two smaller passages, and then we're going to spend most of the rest of our time in chapter 19. Revelation chapter 15, in verse 2, it says this, Revelation 19, 2, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image 
and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding the harps of God. So there's going to be a group of people, just as the lamb overcomes, there's going to be a group of people that do what? That overcome as well. They are victorious. Who are they victorious over? Yeah. The beast. What else? His image, the number of his name. What is all this referring to? Why well, no, we haven't studied Revelation 13 in our Sabbath school class yet, but you've studied it before. What is all this talking about? The beast and his image. What's this describing? Okay, false worship. Anyone else? Okay, this is the conflict at the end of time, right? This is the issue of Revelation 13. You're not going to be able to buy or sell. The whole world is going to have to worship in a certain way. And this group of people overcomes. This group of people goes through the final conflict. They go through a time of trouble such as never was. So the final generation, they're faithful. The final generation is going to overcome the powers of the beast, his image, the mark of the beast, the number of his name, all of that. They overcome that at the end, and they are victorious. In order to get to that point, they go through a host of different situations. Again, the whole world joining together to put pressure on them. And then if you'll drop down with me to verse 8 of the same chapter, Revelation 15 and verse 8, it says there, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. No one's able to enter the temple. What does that image mean? Okay, so it's, it's, it's a close of probation. It's a shift in the ministry of, of what Jesus is doing. He shifts from interceding to ruling. And at that point, there's no more intercession. That does not mean that those people are left without the aid of the Holy Spirit. Uh, God's Spirit is going to be with his people. But this is a climactic time. They go through this difficult period. And I have a quotation I'd like to share with you um, referring to what Travis just mentioned. In the book Great Controversy, it says, those living upon the earth, excuse me, those who are living upon the earth, when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above, are to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. That means the intercession pauses, it ceases. Then she continues, through the grace of God, through the what, everyone? Grace of God, and what? own diligent effort, cooperation. They must be conquerors in the battle with evil. Not only do they overcome the external pressures of the beast and his image, but they also overcome the internal pressures that each one of us face. Um, The tendency, the, the desire for evil that too often plagues each one of us. But how do they do it? Through the grace of God and their own diligent effort. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about sanctification and and justification. And how long does justification cover us? Anybody remember? I know this. I realize, when I ask you what I preached on a few weeks ago, I realize, like, that is a big stretch to try to remember. I'm serious. I mean, like, who remembers what anybody said a few weeks ago? I do, but... Um, that's because I said it. It makes a whole different dynamic. I understand that. But we, we were talking about justification. 
And justification is, applies to what part of our lives? Our whole life, right? Once we're converted, we need justification all the way until we see Jesus face to face. There is never a moment when we do not need justification. No matter how much we grow in sanctification, we still need to be under the covering of justification. There's never a point where sanctification takes over and we could say goodbye to justification, ever. We always need the character, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But that is going to be so transformative for the final generation that by the grace of God and their efforts, by their own surrender, they are conquerors in the battle with evil. Do you want that experience, friends? One major question when people talk about the final generation that they often overlook is, how do I become part of the final generation? Instead of arguing about all these issues, how do I become part of it? And again, this world is a workshop in which God, in cooperation with our own efforts, is making amazing experiments in the human heart. Angels are constantly surrounding us, calling us to cooperate with God. Continuing... Um, This is also from the book Great Controversy, a tremendous book on the history of Christianity from the time of Jesus' death until the second coming. If you haven't read it, let me know. I'll get you a copy. It says this. It is in this life we are to separate sin from us. How? A little louder? Through faith in what? That is how we separate sin from us. Not by gritting our teeth not by digging in our heels, but by believing that Jesus is able to do something for us through faith in the atoning blood of Christ. Our precious Savior invites us to join ourselves to him, unite our weakness to his strength, our ignorance to his wisdom, and our unworthiness to his merits. Amen. That is a description of justification, but it's a justification also that has transforming impact in our life. Our unworthiness to his merits, our weakness to his wisdom, ignorance to his wisdom, and our weakness to his strength. Praise the Lord. So let's go to the last passage. Um, Revelation 17 describes the final generation. They're faithful. They're called, chosen, faithful. Revelation 15, the final generation is going to go through a time of trouble such as never was. They're going to stand in the sight of God without a mediator, intercessor. That does not mean they're on their own. That does not mean their efforts are meritorious. They are always under the grace of Christ and needing his covering. Amen? At the same time, their lives are being changed. And that's what we need. We need to understand that we're continually dependent on Jesus, and yet he continually wants to make us more like him. Revelation 19. Um, Let's turn there. And in Revelation 19, we find the final song in the book of Revelation. There are seven major short hymn sections. This is the last one. And it really brings out a contrast between Babylon, which was described, pardon me, described as a woman and the bride. So in this particular section of Revelation, we have a great contrast between these two women. 
Babylon represents those that are aligned to Satan. The bride represents those that are aligned to Jesus Christ. Is that clear? Two groups, Babylon versus the bride. And at the end, not only is there going to be a final generation of the righteous, there's also going to be a final generation of the wicked, obviously. There's going to be a group of people alive when Jesus comes. And that's what these two women represent, the followers of their respective leaders at the end of time. So as we go through this passage, we we see that there's four hallelujahs. Um, Reminds us of the hallelujah chorus from Handel's Messiah. All these different hallelujahs. And there are two main reasons in this passage for celebration. What are they and why are they so important? Let's look. Revelation 19, verses 1 and 2. John hears something like the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, power belong to our God. Verse 2. Why? What is the reason for the hallelujah? Okay, because God's judgments are true and righteous. And what else? He's judging the harlot. Finally, remember Sabbath school class? How long, O Lord, holy and true? Now is the time in Revelation's story where that prayer gets answered. This is the judgment on the harlot, which represents Satan and all the kingdoms he's used and all the oppression that is in this world and all the injustice that's in this world. One day, it will be judged. Amen. That is a wonderful good news. That's the first reason for celebration. But there's another reason for celebration, and that is in verse 7. The reason for the celebration in verse 7 is the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. So in this song, there are two main causes. One is God's going to judge, and the other is the church has finally got her act together. And that brings us to the final generation. But let's continue a little further. So let's look a little more closely, verses 6 and 7. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, just like he did in the first verse, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, this is the last hallelujah, hallelujah for the Lord our God, omnipotent, excuse me, the almighty reigns. And and the thought here is his reign has begun. In in the story of Revelation, this is the point where God's reign begins. He judges the harlot, and God's reign is starting. Why? Verse 7. You notice what it says in verse 7. Let us do three things. What are those three things? Be glad, rejoice, rejoice, and give give him glory. Threefold praise. Let's be glad, let's rejoice and give him glory because, as I said, the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The bride in Revelation 19 clearly represents the last generation, final generation. And it gives us some insights into what the characteristics of that group of people is going to be. They are described as a bride who has 
made herself ready. Ready for what? Ready for the marriage. Now, of course, when people get married, um, you know, I've never been a bride. I've been a bridegroom, but I've never been a bride. But, um, you know, brides, brides usually are more preoccupied than bridegrooms about weddings. Is that true? Not entirely, maybe. I don't know. Jaime may have been more different. But um, (laughs) brides are generally more preoccupied than bridegrooms. Brides are concerned about? Everything. Okay. (laughs) What are they really concerned about, though? Okay, you're concerned about how they look. The wedding dress. Wedding dress is really important, isn't it? They're concerned about the wedding dress. They're concerned about how they look. When the wedding day comes, what's their main focus? And she's concerned about why the groom is going to show up because she's, she's ready for the groom. You know, all that other ancillary stuff, flowers is nice, all this other stuff, but she's really interested in the groom, right? And the church comes to a point where her main interest is the groom. And that's the point of the passage. The bride has made herself ready. She's ready. And in Jewish tradition, at this time in in Jewish history, the brides would weave their own wedding garments. They would make their own wedding tunics. And John draws from that imagery. Let's continue here um, a little bit more. The marriage has come. Let's look at this in more detail. Verse 8 The bride had, sorry, verse 7 first, and the bride has made herself ready, verse 8. It was given to her. uh, It was given to her. Sabbath school class, what was that? Was given, what? Past tense, yes. I'm talking about my Sabbath school class, the one I taught this morning. I'm looking at you guys because you're the only ones I see. Oh, there you are. Was given, we kind of talked about this. Told you I was going to ask you in the sermon. What? Okay, God's done it, right? It's a passive tense. It's called the divine passive. It was given. God has given her something. What has God given her? Look at it carefully. What has God given her? Mm, That's what we usually say, but that's not what it says. Look at the text carefully. It was given to her. that she should clothe herself or that she should be arraigned. In other words, what's given her is the opportunity to receive the white raiment, the wedding garment. It was given to her, translation I'm reading, New American Standard, it was given to her to clothe herself, to array herself. That is the cooperative emphasis that we looked at in one of the previous verses. It was given to her to clothe herself with what? Fine linen. It's interesting that in chapter 18, the harlot is also decked out in fine linen, but these two women are very different. One are true followers of God, and one are an apostate followers. It was given to her to clothe herself with fine linen. And the marriage is a very familiar theme in the, in, the, in the entire scriptures where God longs to be married to his bride, to his church. Why? Enfeebled and defective as it is, it is the one object that he loves more than anything else. And finally, at this point in history, 
when we're talking about the last generation, the last generation reciprocates in some measure the tremendous love that God has for the church and says, you want to be with me forever? I want to be with you forever. And that is a key element of being part of the final generation. Wanting to be with Jesus forever. And when the church reaches that point, that's when the marriage comes. That's when the harlot is judged. That's when God is able to fully reign. When the bride is fully ready. Again, it's given to her. Part of her preparation is clothing herself. Looks like I lost it. Sorry. Um, I'm not sure. It's okay. Uh, Sorry. Part of her preparation is being clothed in the fine linen. The two women, as I said, they're very, very different. One has been corrupting the earth. The other is preparing for the wedding. And the question for us simply is, which group do you want to be part of? Do you want to be part of the bride that is with eager anticipation, looking forward to being with the bridegroom forever. Um, The quotation from a book, it says this, it is only when the church has the will to be faithful to God that God is declared to be sovereign. In the book of Revelation, it's when the church decides it's going to be faithful to God. It's in this part of the story in Revelation that God is declared to be sovereign. So now the question is, do we want to be part of that last generation? We want to be part of that group of people that just want to live to be with the bridegroom. That's what God's calling us to. And despite all the controversy around the final generation, there is going to be a final generation. There is going to be a second coming of Jesus Christ. And what you and I need to know for sure is that we need to fall deeply in love with Jesus Christ. As the bride loves her husband. And Christ Objects Lessons, page 415 says, the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is what? A revelation of his character of love. And as I said earlier, the importance of a final generation is not simply so that we can escape this horrendous world, although it is pretty bad and getting worse. That's not the point. The point is that we can reflect the love of God that we have experienced with other people as well. And if we're thinking, I'm going to be a final generation, but I'm going to build walls and barriers so I can be, you know, protected. True, we shouldn't be participating in sin, but we also need to be aggressively diffusing the love of God and sharing it with others. That's what God is calling us to. The children of God are to manifest God's glory. And when they do, then they're part fully of the final generation. Final generation is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. Question is, are we going to be ready? Are we clothing ourselves with the fine linen, which represents Christ's character, his righteousness? Are we daily choosing to represent him in every action? The final generation will. So, do you want to be part of the final generation? Here's how. Learn to surrender every day. By the grace of God and your own diligent efforts, be overcomers in your personal battle with evil. 
learn how much he loves you and how much he is longing to be with you and long to reflect that same inclusive, drawing, compelling love with everyone that you meet. That will form us into that generation. Father in heaven, thank you for the tremendous love that you have for us. Thank you that you love us um, with a never-ending love, enfeebled, defective, weak, needing to be reproved, yet you still consider us the apple of your eye. Father, may that love be transformative in our lives, and may we share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.